Turning back in the word of the Lord today to the book of 1 Samuel and to the chapter 13. The book of 1 Samuel and the chapter 13, and we'll read just 19, verse 19 again. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. And we're taking the topic this morning, not ready for the battle. Not ready for the battle. And tonight we'll be taking the topic, the bridge on the River Kwai. And do encourage your friends and family to come along tonight at 6.30, please. Let's bow in further prayer. Our gracious Father, again we thank Thee that it is to Thee that we come. The disciples once said, when challenged, Lord, to whom else can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And of course, by derivation from that, nobody else does. There's not a single person in this world who can bring eternal life to us but thou thyself. Lord, may men and women stop trying to save themselves. Stop imagining they can somehow be good enough or do enough to gain the favor of God. When that was said, stamped it clearly in the word, not of works, lest any man should boast, rather by grace. Are ye saved through faith? That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And may men and women appreciate and receive thy great gift. May they do it this morning. May they do it tonight. We ask in Jesus' name and for God's eternal glory. Amen. When the sun rose over Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 1941, it seemed like the most unlikely place or the day to start a war. The weather was perfect. There were light winds, cool temperatures, blue skies dotted with puffy clouds. The birds began to fill the morning air with their songs. Families had begun to get ready for morning worship at their local church. Sailors had prepared for what they believed was going to be another day of routine tasks. But abruptly, at 7.55 in the morning, 190 attacking Japanese warplanes shattered this picturesque morning calm. Using the art of surprise to perfection, they had brought six aircraft carriers within striking distance of America's South Pacific fleet. And in a, it must be granted, a superbly coordinated attack, wave after wave of Japanese planes strafed and bombed the harbor and airfield. Supporting them, there was a number of two-man subs that had silently entered the harbor. When the attack ended, 
2,313 American servicemen lay dead or were dying. Another 1,145 had been wounded. Five battleships were now in the bottom of the harbor. Two destroyers had been reduced to gutted hulks. A third was badly crippled, and many other warships were severely damaged, and that airfield was virtually destroyed. The Americans hated to admit it. But the Japanese had found a people unprepared for battle. By the time the American forces realized we are under attack, all of their defenses had been crippled. As the last Japanese plane disappeared over the horizon, they left behind a fleet that had effectively been destroyed. As Christians, we have an enemy that is no less, less ruthless or cunning. Every day that we live, we find he crafts, careful plans, executes them as well. And those plans, they are aimed at our destruction. Down through the centuries of time, the devil has launched countless Pearl Harbor-style attacks designed to cripple the church of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, in the verse 8 and the verse 9, we have this alert. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith. And in 2 Corinthians 2 and the verse 11, we have these words, we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, the devil has an arsenal, a whole storage depot of weaponry, but it's limited. But what he does is he recycles the old materials again and again. Not long ago, they were talking about running out of 155 millimeter shells in the battle in Ukraine. And they were looking about for old stocks. Maybe some country somewhere has a stockpile of these. Old weaponry. The devil specializes in that and keeps bringing it out. Supply after supply after supply. I imagine we can identify at least four strategies that the devil employs in his attacks against the true church of Jesus Christ. He will try in his attacks to disarm us, first of all, and that will strip us of our power. Then he'll try to distract us, to lead us away from our purpose and what we ought to be doing. He'll take us somewhere totally different. He'll disable us to impair our productivity, and he will try to destroy us ultimately, and that will totally neutralize any potential that we ever had. Now, the first of these strategies you can see very powerfully illustrated in the lines of our text here today. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, and in particular, verse 17 through to the verse 23, the devil is coming along, and he is trying to disarm us, to strip us of our power. 
We have Saul here in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul is in his second year as king over the nation of Israel, and things really couldn't have been going any worse than they were. The Philistines, they have come along. They have encamped about four miles from Saul's military capital in Gibeah. And according to verse 5 of the chapter, we find the army of the Philistines has 30,000 chariots within it, 6,000 mounted cavalry, a large force of infantry as well. And against this massive show of strength, all Saul had been able to muster was 3,000 men. And when they began, those 3,000, to enumerate and count up the number of tents in the Philistine camp, over two-thirds of Saul's force panicked and fled. Saul was vastly outnumbered. But to make matters worse, his force was also absurdly outgunned. If you look at verse 19, verse 20 of 1 Samuel 13, you'll read, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. And in verse 22, So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and Jonathan his son was there found. Well, a big lot of good that was going to do. Amongst the whole of their force, they had two swords that they could boast of, one for Saul, one for Jonathan, and the rest of it just a small squad, armed, as you see in the Bible reading here, armed with farm implements, sporting very little military wherewithal. Those Philistines, they had been very cunning indeed. And so they had disarmed the people of God. They had stripped the land of Israel of her weaponry, and therefore they denied her an effective fighting force. And I'm convinced the devil uses the same strategy against the church of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10 and 4, Paul mentions the weapons of our warfare. You see, when the Lord Jesus set up His church, He equipped that church for battle. That's why we have Ephesians 6, where we're standing strong with all the implements and the items of weaponry that we need against the devil. He didn't leave us powerless. He did arm us for the conflict. But many today, sadly, looking around, they have allowed the devil to come in and strip them of their weapons and leave them to fight their spiritual battles and battles they will have with inferior armaments. They're looking down the muzzles of the devil's cannons, and all they have to weave against that are a few farm implements. Nothing better than that. In this day, the devil has largely nullified the message of the gospel. In our generation today, there's widespread confusion everywhere over what would entitle a man or a woman to reach God's heaven. 
How can a person be saved? What saves the soul? And the miserable, the cheating, the disreputable, those ecumenical clergymen who've been going about in the country for years now, they have tossed the necessity of faith and repentance towards God out over the church wall, and now they tell gullible, biblically ignorant people that any kind of attachment to Jesus Christ, no matter how loose it is, will have you saved. Are you baptized? Then you're fine. Are you confirmed? That's okay. Are you a regular church attender? Then it'll be all right with you. Do you even believe in God or any sort of good are you up to? Then you're fine. What devilish nonsense that is. It's not the biblical gospel. Paul said in Romans 1, the verse 16 through 18, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Where do you hear it said? And said plainly, God saves us through His righteousness from His wrath. And if you're not saved, by Jesus Christ, then it is wrath that you're going to. You're under wrath today. You're under condemnation as an unbeliever in His Son, and you are headed for fiery punishment. Where do we hear that kind of preaching? There are many people in this age would be willing to queue up just to applaud Jesus Christ as a wonderful teacher, a beautiful character, a tremendous example, but they're ashamed of His gospel. They want nothing to do with that. He, working for us a righteousness that we don't have, that is alien to us, that we cannot manufacture, that we cannot produce, he dying in our place, taking our fiery condemnation upon Him, so that, trusting only in Him, we are set free. Who wants to sign up to that scheme, God's means of salvation? I was very interested to read the words of Dr. John Gill. And we're catapulting away back into the 1600s here. And he talked about those who hide and conceal it, who have abilities to preach it and do not, or who preach but not the gospel, or who preach the gospel only in part, who own that in private that they will not preach in public, and use ambiguous words of doubtful signification to cover themselves, who blend the gospel with their own inventions, seek to please men, live upon popular applause, regard their own interest and not Christ, and cannot bear the reproach of His gospel. You'll not have to travel too far 
to find one of those characters today. And the devil is rubbing his hands in glee at the sight and sound of every last one of them. How he loves these guys and girls with farm implements in their hands, standing in pulpits, prattling all day long about all the unbiblical rubbish of the day. Mission pretty much accomplished as far as he is concerned when he sees them in motion. But what in reality is the gospel? It's often said, it was mentioned at the funeral by Victor Maxwell yesterday, that John 3 and 16 is the gospel in a nutshell, and we can't dispute that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is the teaching of that text and of the entire Bible about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's put it in one line. My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel's remedy for the sins of men. And he tells us here in Romans 1 and 17 that the gospel in the righteousness of God, it's revealed here because God can be holy and righteous and just in that He can put the sentence for our sin upon His Son as our substitute. And having done that, Christ bearing our burden God can justify the sinner, save him by his grace, put on him his own spotless, flawless robe of righteousness, and pronounced him clean, ready for heaven. Now, I and you would be right to be ashamed of any religion that ignored or overlooked your iniquity or your sin. I would be ashamed of some cheap forgiveness that compromise the holiness and the righteousness of God. But I can never be ashamed of the sublime of the stupendous act and fact where God in Christ reconciles me unto Himself, renders me pardoned and justified, prevents me from free-falling into the eternal terrors of hell, presents me faultless, rather, before the presence of His glory, so that even the greatest archangel in heaven can stand before me and say, I accuse you of this or that sin. I am not ashamed of that gospel that takes a poor, polluted sinner and makes him fit for the company of heaven. How can I be? Because that's absolutely wonderful. John Frith, one of the martyrs, one of 300 or so during the wicked reign of Queen Mary. Because of his faith in Christ, he was offered a chance of escape by some of the archbishop's men. They were happy to let him go. He said, Do you think that I am afraid to declare mine opinion unto the bishops of England in a manifest truth? If you should both leave me here and go tell the bishops that you had lost Firth, I would surely follow as fast as I might and bring them news that I had found and brought Firth again. I'm going to stand and testify to the gospel of Christ. 
the true minister of Jesus Christ, is not ashamed of the results of the gospel. Paul tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Going into the harbor of Syracuse, you'll find at the waterfront there a statue of Archimedes, famous Greek engineer. At the siege of Syracuse, Archimedes set fire to the Roman fleet by the refraction of his mirrors. He was the man who claimed that if he could only find a place in which to stand and rest his lever, he would move the world. Well, so much for his boast. Two centuries later, a ship came sailing into the bay of Syracuse. It came from Malta. On that ship, there was a man that we know very well from reading in the Word of God. He's a prisoner in chains at this time. He's on his way to Rome, but that prisoner was the very man, not Archimedes, who had found the lever that would move the world. There was a charge brought against him by rioters in the city of Thessalonica, but it was true in the highest sense. They said of him in Acts 17 and 6, these that have turned the world upside down. That prisoner, of course, was the Apostle Paul. That lever that turned the world upside down was the gospel of Christ crucified. And that did turn the world upside down and inside out as well. The results were utterly dramatic and dynamic. And while we're right to look across our country today and lament over the wickedness and lawlessness on every hand, while we're perfectly justified in weeping over the spiritual state of our province today, we should not be so depressed by this wickedness into thinking that the gospel has little or no effect. Every system of darkness Every movement of tyranny, every setup built on superstition and lies that has passed out of our earth long since disappeared into the grave, what has put it there? Exhume it and ask it, and they will all answer, Christ smoke us. We shriveled up and we died. And we need this power today. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. That's the only teaching that God has honored for 20 centuries plus and way before with success and is honoring at the present day should all the forms that men devise attack my faith with treacherous art. I'll call them vanities and lies and bind the gospel to my heart. The devil tries to disarm us, stripping us of his power. He also tries to distract us, to lead us from our purpose. And he has successfully put the blinkers on many a church and caused it to be waylaid, to lose sight of its mission, to forget why it was instituted by Christ. And in many cases, he has neutralized the church. Paul sets out the function and the ministry of the church of Christ in Ephesians 4. 
verse 11 through 16, but especially verse 12. And basically what he tells us here in 12 is the ministry, the mission of the church is to mature the saints. It's to mobilize them in service. And it is to multiply our outreach so that in all things we magnify Christ. Now, of course, through good practical Christianity, allowing the rubber to hit the road in terms of living out the Christian life, we can help people in solving their problems. We can help families construct stronger homes. We can confront some of the problems in our society. Through our fellowship, we can build relationships, enjoy our worship of God. But while these things help us, our primary focus is Mature the saints, mobilize them in service, multiply our outreach. In all things, magnify Christ. Can we summarize that? Well, we can in a couple of lines. To grow up into Christ and glorify Him in the world. In one line, in fact. To grow up into Christ and glorify Him in the world. I want to ask a second question, one that brings it closer to home. Why does this church exist in this community? so that we meet together as a body of believers in a local fashion, so that we can be entertained, so that we can establish friendships. Well, all of those can be byproducts in terms of the good fellowship that we enjoy together. But the reason why God established the local church is so that we can come together to be matured in our faith, drawing on Christ, equipped to serve God for the building up of His body through evangelism. Maturity must lead to service, and service must lead out to evangelism. Now, we've been distracted. We've even been derailed from our purpose. If all we achieve is massaging people's ego and helping them a little bit in their problems so that they can work their way through and lead happy happier or more prosperous lives. We need souls for the kingdom. We need jewels for Christ's crown. That's the fuller, deeper ministry that we must pursue. And to miss it is to miss the purpose for which Christ has built His church. No doubt everybody in the meeting is familiar with a bath. You didn't think I was going to say that. The first bathtub came about in Cincinnati, in Ohio, in the year 1842. They unveiled it at a Christmas party. It attracted a host of objections from doctors and politicians. The next day, the local papers denounced it as a luxurious and democratic vanity. Doctors warned that the bathtub would be a menace to health. The politicians issued a ban. You were not allowed to use the bath between the 1st of November and the 15th of March. Boston made getting into the bath unlawful, except you had a prescription from the doctor. That's right. One state. And of course, others have got on the bandwagon, and this one levied a $30 annual tax on every house that had a bathtub, and some cities increased their water rates for bathing. 
The first bathtubs were encased in mahogany. They were lined with sheet metal. They were seven feet long and more than four feet wide. They weighed about 1,750 pounds. Water had to be pumped into them. We have certainly come a long way since then. Why did I go on this diversion? To make a point. This is what the church is meant to do in this world. Endorse baths? No, that's not what I'm talking about. That is not the point. We are meant to go a long way. We are meant to make progress. We are designed to mature in Christ and have an impact upon the world around us. You can check it out in the epistle to the Colossians. That letter is all about spiritual maturity. And in chapter 1, the emphasis there is on the supremacy of Christ. Get that into our mind and our heart. And then chapter 2 will follow where you find satisfaction in Christ, submission to Christ, and service for Christ. Paul is talking about spiritual growth and progress. He's speaking to those believers in Colossae, as well as to us, of course, that they should be making strides, going forward in their Christian lives. Progress must be made. Vance Havner was pretty close to the mark when he said, Paul speaks of spiritual babies who don't grow up. Some of these 200-pound babies, as he describes them, keep their pastors running as they run around with a milk bottle when they should have been on beef steak a long time ago. Paul is saying here, it is time to grow up, to mature in the spiritual experience, but the devil wants to keep us from that. If he can stuntify our growth, if he can stop us advancing, if he can hold us back from spiritual maturity, if he can make sure that our spiritual diet never gets above the level of drinking milk, not the strong meat of the world, Hebrews, of the word, Hebrews 5, 12, and 13. Then if the devil does that, he's scoring an ace. He's succeeding in distracting us, leading us from our purpose to grow up into Christ and glorify Him in the world. So He tries to disarm us, strip us of our power, to distract us, lead us from our purpose, to disable us, impair our productivity. Analyze the situation that we find around us today, and what do we discover? The devil has nullified our advance. We're very conscious in our day and generation of the subject of disabilities. There's a heightened awareness. There's a lot more empathy today than ever there was. Often, we have no control over these things. They may be inherited. They may come upon us as a result of an accident. But our enemy, the devil, he is deliberately putting things into our paths that are designed to cripple you and I in our Christian walk. We could list some of them, but I know you'll readily identify them. Sins of neglect, a failure to pray or study the Bible in the way that we should, sinful habits that produce guilt and bring chastisement and discredit or witness, sinful attitudes, a love of money perhaps, bitterness towards other people, prejudices that we stoke up and never let go of. 
But let's focus on some of these factors that disable our witness. We're in the realm of supplication. I know it is difficult. I don't minimize it. And the more you do it, the more difficult you will discover it is. But we need to pray. And we need to pray as never before. In fact, at those times when we feel least like praying, we ought to be praying the more. We need to pray with earnestness. We need to pray with persistence. We need to pray in faith. We need to pray in accordance with God's mighty promises, praying His handwriting back to Himself. And we have this wonderful promise in Jeremiah 33 and 3, Call upon me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Samuel Chadwick's dying command to the students that he had taught was simply this, Marshal the forces of prayer. Nothing else will do, and nothing less will do if we're going to fan the smoldering embers of our spiritual lives and see this province being engulfed in spiritual flames again. That's what makes the devil tremble. Supplication. Another area is separation. Today there's widespread confusion that there didn't used to be as to what way should a Christian behave. God never intended His church to be isolated from society. He never planned that this world should be evangelized by the ministry of monks who were throwing parchments out over the wall of the monastery hoping to land in someone's hand. But he does intend the church to be separated from secular values and practices. He designed the church to be distinctively different from the world in which it exists. Remember one of the points that Jesus stressed in prayer before he went to the cross, returned to heaven. In John 17, verse 14 and 18, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. But is it not the case that Christian goes to places, does things, the non-Christian does? No difference. The conflict between Christians occur just as often and as bitterly as conflict between non-Christians. No difference. The Christian homes are starting to break up just about as often as non-Christian homes. No difference that mainstream Christian music can be targeted at spiritual or it can just flip over with no change to secular audiences, no difference. Instead of converting the world, the church is being crippled by the values and the philosophies and the practices of the world. We need to get our priorities right. In fact, if you're going to hit the nail on the head, then we need to get our hearts right. Our hearts right. So there's supplication, there's separation, there's service. And they're all connected. Because if there's little to no supplication, and if there's little to no separation, then there'd be little to no effective service. 
The devil has us on the back foot, running for cover instead of marching for Christ. The German story says that after the concert of the Prussian military in Paris, and that was before Emperor Napoleon, Napoleon entered into conversation with the man in charge of the military there, Parlo, in charge of the band. And in conversation, the emperor lifted one of the instruments, brass instrument, it was heavy, and he said, do your band's people wear these knapsacks in the field as well as carry these things? Certainly, sir, answered Parlo. But how, asked the emperor, how do they manage in retreat? Do you know, your majesty? That's not practiced among our people. And the German victories that came after that must have reminded Napoleon, these guys don't have a reverse gear. They don't retreat. But the devil, he's determined to disable us, determined to impair our productivity. We need to remind ourselves of what Matthew Henry wisely warned, let not the strong man glory in his strength, nor in any of his military operations, but let him that glories glory in the Lord. Because we in ourselves are nothing, we're just like these Hebrews under Saul, a small and feeble host nor have we ought of prowess wherein to make our boast. Our stronghold is Christ Jesus, His grace. Alone we plead His name, our shield and banner Himself. That is just all we need. And we are reminded in Hosea 14 and 8 and John 15 and 5 and Philippians 4 and 13, from me is thy fruit found. Without me ye can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The devil tries to disarm us, strip us of our power, distract us, lead us away from our purpose, disable us, impair our productivity, finally destroy us, and that is neutralize our potential. That's his ultimate desire. That's the top shelf as far as he's concerned. That's what he wants to do. Get that big weapon out and take us out with it. And like the Philistines in our text today in 1 Samuel 13, he amasses his forces and he's got all of these chariots and he's these cavalrymen and he's got the infantry coming and he's got all the tents, the big encampment, and it's all out there. And the purpose is completely annihilate the opposition. He's not content to disarm or to distract or to disable. He's not for stopping at that point. He wants to destroy us. You see, he envies the position and the privileges of the people of God. It grieves him that we should go on to enjoy the paradise that he was banished from, that we would have the comforts that he once had and fell from. That's why he disturbs us. That's why he's restless in attacking us. That's why he's wanting to destroy us. It rises up out of that intense hatred that he has fostered of God and of goodness. John Trapp, the Puritan preacher, said, Satan is overcome, and yet he walks up and down seeking to devour. 
He commits the sin against the Holy Ghost every day and shall lie lowest in hell. Every soul that he drew thither by his temptation shall lie upon him and press him down as a millstone under the unsupportable wrath of God. Throw him out the front door and you'll find him instantly creeping in through the back door. He's a belligerent enemy. The battle is still raging, raging, Luther said, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work his womb. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Well, what should we do? We need to stand fast, hold the ground, no retreat. That's the command of Jesus Christ because this conflict with the devil is a continuous and a relentless one. And in fact, as a hymn writer put it, more Fierce will grow the conflict as nears our Lord's return. And our Lord said that in Matthew 24 and other places. But he also said, my people will become sidetracked. They'll spend their spiritual life off the main line. They'll be in the sidings. They'll be throwing missiles at everybody that's trying to live for Christ wearing the same uniform who were on the main line. But we can stop that by maintaining our defenses. Don't let him strip us of our power, especially in terms of our message. Don't allow him to deflect us from our purpose. Be careful. We're not disabled as individuals or as a church. Let's not be this people. Saul's army. that were caught, not ready for the battle, not ready for the battle.